Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time to bring in our next guest. Now we have Marvin Lowe. Very lucky to have him because he deals in all sorts of derivatives and trades that I'm sure are particularly exciting at a time like this. Marvin Lowe of State Street in Boston. So Marvin, have you been having fun the last couple of days in the market? (laughs) It it certainly has been a wild ride, hasn't it? Um, I'm I'm tired like everyone else, so uh, we'd like to move on to the next thing. But, you know, clearly we're still in the throes of the election and, you know, waiting outcomes. How do you read it, though? How do you read this market where we've had a VIX all the way up, as Paul said, close to 40, but way back down now, even though there's more, more uncertainty over who's actually going to be president of this country? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, certainly, um, I, I had always thought that the Senate was the, you know, and of course, the, the, the um, who occupies the White House is, is clearly important for, for tone, but the Senate was um, potentially one of the most important outcomes um, particularly for businesses and how to approach the next four years. And from that perspective, we do have clarity. So I think that there is a lot of pricing around, um, around kind of the gridlock that a divided uh, Congress provides. So, Marvin, again, it looks like if current trends hold, we, we will have a split government in terms of a Democratic White House and a Republican Senate. What's your, what do you think the from a fiscal stimulus package – can get done, should get done. What's kind of in your forecast? Yeah, should, should get done, absolutely. Uh, can get done. Um, I think it's the size that ultimately it has, has been um, the, the unknown over the last couple of weeks, ultimately, you know, ultimately once again. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm earmarking somewhere around a trillion dollars, certainly much less than the conversation around the blue wave, which was closer to three. Um, but even more important, um, that uh, blue wave discussion also included, you know, infrastructure spending and, and potential uh, transfer of wealth types, uh, type strategies, if you will. And, and that is, is off the table with kind of this divided Congress that we're looking at now. But, but uh, should happen. Um, and, and now we're kind of parsing when it will happen. All right. So you think a trillion, which is pretty stunning, given that we were at 1.8 trillion on the Republican side before this all happened. What brings you down to a trillion? Do you think that because Mitch McConnell seems to have more control over the Senate now and there may not even be Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the next version of Congress, that that's why we'll come back down again? Yeah, you know, I I mean, the the um, um, the Senate Republicans certainly were at a much lower level than even even that trillion. Um, uh, it, it does depend, I think, who uh, occupies the White House. Um, you know, this is all conjecture at this point. Um, but, you know, I could see I could see if um, President Trump uh, somehow is reelected, that the package might be larger because he would be able to um, uh, to, to pressure the Senate Republicans in a way that uh, President Biden couldn't. So, you know, there's still ultimately a lot in flux. But I think I think the key is that um, it is needed and likely will happen, um, you know, particularly as we're on the eve of a non, you know, the, the next employment report. And, you know, we're, we're parsing economic data, which, while not um, terrible, certainly isn't improving uh, that much. Marvin, are you surprised at perhaps how well uh, risk assets, uh, equities, credit is holding up in the face of what are just the worst pandemic numbers we've seen since the beginning of this? 
Yes and no. Um, I mean, certainly if you asked me in the middle of March, you know, where where a lot of these risk levels would be, I, I would not be here. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to ultimately say that. Um, the biggest determinant for risk assets has been the amount of stimulus. Um, and it has been kind of the dual approach of both fiscal and monetary. Um, I think what we wind up with is... Um, comfort or the need for the Fed ultimately to remain very, very active in these markets. And I think we're, and I think we're seeing some of that make its way through risk assets over the last couple of days, um, that the Fed has no choice now but to really go full out on anything that it can, um, because we're not going to get the degree of uh, fiscal that uh, I think that they had been hoping for and that the blue wave would have implied. So this trillion that you think might come out of Congress, where will it go? Will there be help for states? Will there be any targeted stimulus for certain industries? Yeah, you know, and, and, and a lot of this still um, still kind of requires um, knowledge of who's going to sit in uh, who's going to sit in the in the White House. But certainly, unemployment uh, benefits, um, kind of a restart of that. Uh, certainly, something um, on the small business side of things, because I do think that there is agreement that we've got to help Main Street more. Um, there is still contention around uh, around state aid, and, and kind of I think that's one of the more volatile aspects of of the discussion. Um, so the easy parts are small business, and certainly the um, certainly um, uh, bringing unemployment benefits kind of back into discussion. So, Marvin, as a global macro strategist, where do you see, I guess, the best opportunities here as you, as you look at 12 months? Are you, are you geographically diversified to the extent you'd like to be, or do you find yourself a little bit more concentrated in the U.S.? Yeah, you know what? I, I still find myself concentrated in the U.S. You know, I think U.S. companies um, have an advantage uh, over uh, many of the other companies around the world. So really this kind of tech discussion that, you know, we've all participated in for the last six months still makes sense. Um, yields themselves, you know, I, I think that without stimulus and kind of with um, – the potential of inflation um, increasing as part of um, kind of the reflation trade going away uh, keeps yields kind of at these levels. The Fed ultimately um, needing to be aggressive uh, will, uh, you know, help those yields remain at these levels. So, you know, taking that thread and kind of um, figuring out which asset classes uh, are, are most attractive to you in that environment is kind of what we do. So certainly the tech discussion still makes uh, makes sense. The reach for yield still makes sense. Um, I think emerging markets become more interesting if there's a little bit more stability, but it does wind up being, you know, what parts of the world and which countries you're most interested in. Um, and then reach for yield really does uh, go, into the, go into various parts of the spread market. So kind of looking for those spread products, which makes sense uh, in, this, in this new, if you will, divided government is, is what we're doing now. Why, though, are equities rallying as well as all sorts of safe haven assets from bonds and treasuries, obviously, to gold? You know, I, I, I think, I think um, kind of the, um, the specter that yields might rise um, to an uncomfortable level is off the table right now. So you're kind of seeing that long duration trade uh, play its way into it. Um, I do think that investors had been somewhat neutral kind of going into the elections with, with the risk associated with it. And, um, you know, there's still a lot of repair that needs to be done in the economy. But kind of a divided government is, is you know, with an active Fed um, is good for financial assets, um, you know, at, uh, you know uh, as, as kind of a base case, if you will. We're speaking with Marvin Lowe, Global Macro Strategist at State Street. Marvin, you mentioned, you touched on just uh, emerging markets. It, it seems like I know a lot of people are tempted to go out on the risk curve and take a look at emerging markets. But boy, with this 
pandemic backdrop and with some of the economic uncertainty that is likely to continue from it, it just it feels like it just isn't the time. How do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, gingerly, um, most certainly there's, uh, you know, and we're all making impl- implications um, and assumptions as to what the new government is going to try to do without really knowing, you know, firmly what the new government is going to look like, even, you know, even if even if we're correct in, in who sits in the White House and how kind of how Congress is divided, um, you know, uh, we're, we're making guesses on what those policies look like. So in terms of reflation and in terms of um, potentially, um, you know, uh, some benefits associated with commodities and therefore commodity countries, we're, 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 we're making guesses. So so gingerly, I do think that there is a lot of liquidity in the market. Um, so funding for, for what uh, the emerging markets might need to do to kind of get their economies back in place seems to be available. And, and, and that does provide some comfort. Um, so, you know, parcel through it. There are, there are ways within the fixed income market to uh, take out the FX exposure. So, you know, I certainly have liked um, hard currency EM bonds as part of the discussion. Um, and Asia right now is certainly interesting given that uh, the virus seems to be uh, in better control. And, you know, um, the data coming out of uh, Asia is a bit more solid. So, you know, th- th- that ultimately is the process that I think all investors in emerging markets need to go through. So obviously, Fed Chair Jay Powell will try to stay away from anything political or partisan later on today when he speaks. Nevertheless, he'll get some questions about what he might be able to do if there is no stimulus or a delay to stimulus or a small stimulus. What can he say to calm markets or, or not pull the middle a tailspin? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly, um, you know, continuing to say that the Fed is there, um, that they will use all tools um, available. Um, that they believe they still have more tools um, that they can deploy. Uh, you know, I think that I'm looking for kind of a twisting in their asset purchases, particularly with um, uh, with the U.S. Treasury still issuing more longer data paper. And, you know, we had seen uh, some of the, um, the steepening of the curve, you know, prior to, again, uh, the election results, because I think that there's been so much uh, coupon issuance in the market. So, um, you know, I, I think that's stage one. But, you know, his toolbox is um, uh, depleted relative to where we were a year, year and a half ago. Um, And the Fed's going to continue to be pushed um, towards obtaining its new long-term goals uh, around inflation and around kind of helping the jobs market. So, uh, you know, for the time being, um, there's still QE that they could do. There's still some twisting. Um, Yields remain fairly controlled. Uh, and, you know, they'd like to see what the economy looks like as we go into next year with the virus still, um, you know, front and center in terms of um, their concerns. Hey, Marvin, just looking on my Bloomberg screen here, I see gold up 42, maybe $43 an ounce. That's 2.25%. So we're at $1,945 an ounce for gold. What do you think is going on in the gold market? How do you guys uh, have yourselves positioned vis-a-vis gold? Um, yeah, so, so um, you know, I think that's part of the dollar story at this point. Um, there's been uh, a reacceleration of kind of this dollar debasement uh, type story, given that, you know, the Fed's probably going to buy more bonds um, and, and, you know, kind of relative to what other uh, economy, uh, other countries are able to do. So, you know, I do, I do think gold and kind of that dollar debasement story uh, go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, that, that, that is a popular trade that, um, uh, that even if we don't get as much stimulus the Fed can kind of offset that based on um, how it approaches um, asset purchases. So, Marvin, if there was one piece of advice that you would give to a client who called you up today and said, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of what's going to happen. What would you tell them? 
No, I, 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 I'd say holistically, um, you know, realize that the central banks are still a large part of this discussion. And, you know, from a stimulus side of things, Washington will get something done. Um, it, you know, it, it's the size that we're arguing with, but, you know, the economy needs it. And um, I think that they're going to, um, uh, you know, get something that's going to provide relief to, uh, you know, a lot of people who, who need it right now. Marvin Lowe, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Marvin Lowe, global macro strategist at State Street. We appreciate his perspective on across assets. Boy, we asked him about just about everything from gold to equities to credit to commodities. Uh, but it just seems, Avani, here that this is a market rallying here. It's looking for risk. It's comfortable taking risk. And the status quo, I think, for this market uh, seems to be uh, pretty bullish here. Right. And I think there was money on the sidelines, particularly for distress investments, you know, junk bonds and so on. And that's probably rolling in a little bit more as we head throughout the, the months into the winter. And, you know, unsurprisingly, as COVID cases start to absolutely go crazy again, I mean, we're over 100,000 a day now in the US. And, you know, you have to wonder what that will do to economies around the country. Obviously, we're getting, you know, labor market data and so on, showing that the labor market was slowly improving. But that's going to turn around as well, Paul, if, if coronavirus keeps popping its head up. Well, we're still counting votes, as we all know, but it appears that we may be headed towards a government structure where the Democrats control the House and potentially the White House, while the Republicans retain control of the Senate and business leaders are trying to figure out what it means for their business. And one of the big areas is taxation. Kate Barton, global vice chair of tax at accounting firm EY, joins us to give us some color here. So, Kate, given what we know now about how the government may be structured in terms of Republicans and Democrats, what are you telling your clients today about how they should be thinking about their tax situation? Well, thank you. I, I think we're um, I'm definitely telling our clients to practice patience. <laughs> and uh, that's the key. And we're all wondering what happened to the polls here. But, um, you know, patience is, is the key. But, you know, I think that if it does, in fact, go um, red, you know, blue, red, blue, if you will, um, you know, it's a different um, perspective. Companies before that or before, you know, the last two days were modeling out a blue wave uh, to be ready for that. Um, I think that if it is, in fact, blue, red, blue, it'll be less change, but still um, could be significant. Right. So we're, um, we're looking at every scenario. Yeah. And in fact, it, it's it's even blue, red, less blue, right? You know, blue, red, a little more red than, than it was in Congress. So talk to us about Biden's tax plan, because he very much has one. Would he be able to get anything through? Well, I think that um, Biden has had a record of really going bipartisan and trying to work both sides of the aisle. So, you know, the his efforts on collaboration, I wouldn't underestimate. He does have a headline rate going up from 21 to 28 percent. He's also contemplating a corporate minimum tax, which has a lot of our clients concerned. Uh, but, you know, what happens um, in terms of campaign rhetoric and what actually happens, I'm sure there'll be a lot of distance between those. So, you know, the other um, aspect is, you know, the indirect taxes that could come. Uh, President um, or nominee uh, Biden has basically said that he would want carbon taxes or, um, you know, really uh, take a, a closer look at that area. So it could be uh, that indirect taxes take on more of a front page news story. 
And I think what we've heard from candidate Biden and, and generally from the Democratic Party is perhaps a reallocation of the tax burden um, so that perhaps wealthy people pay more, corporations pay more. Is there any appetite for meaningful tax reform here if, in fact, we do have somewhat of a split government? You know, you really have to wonder whether it will be their first priority. Most leading economists say that governments have to be super careful about sort of doing that tap dance between stimulus versus revenue raising. Clearly, we have a lot of deficits. They're going to have to be paid at some point. But the timing of that could have a huge impact on the U.S. economy and the recovery from the virus. So I think that is something that, you know, has to be carefully thought through. For sure, I think we're going to see governments around the world, including the U.S., um, try to tax big business and ultra high net worth individuals. Uh, 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 candidate Biden basically had a proposition that he wanted to tax individuals over that make over four hundred thousand dollars a year. And so, you know, we'll have to see if that actually goes forward in a blue, red, blue. And, and what would be the timing? You know, is right. that going to be the first order of business? There was also the idea that he would do something about tax headquarters that are overseas. What are you telling clients to do in terms of where they might be headquartered? Listen, companies are all, every country around the world is looking at where supply chains are and our goods, especially health and consumer products like um, aspirin and, and that type of um, drugs. Are they made close enough to the consumer? So, you know, both uh, candidates, if you will, uh, President Trump and, and candidate Biden, uh, both of them have um, a made in America aspect to their tax plans and, and more more focus on things should be made closer to the consumer. So what form that takes, um, we're all watching. I mean, at the end of the day, our clients need to make goods and services and places that make sense for... Um, yeah, but I'm not talking about supply chain or where things are made. I mean, if you take Apple, for example, things can be made in China, but it's 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 paying its tax, you know, in a very complicated way and goes through Ireland and various places. That That's what I mean. Well, companies that are have a digital footprint, I mean, are around the world, the OECD, everybody is looking at that and trying to come up with a multilateral approach to tax. If every country does their own thing, I mean, companies are looking at double, triple taxation, which could be really a killer in this type of an environment. And so, um, you know, that is a, a big issue and one where, you know, the U.S. Treasury and its um, relationship with the OECD is an important one. Kate, one of the uh, tax issues that's near and dear to the hearts of our listeners in the tri-state area of New York is the state and local tax. What, if anything, has uh, candidate Biden said about that? Well, candidate Biden had a proposal that he would allow state and local taxes to be deducted, although they would be phased out, um, if you will, as you earned more money closer to that $400,000 I, re- I referenced. But you know, he would um, put back in the state and local deduction. So that was an important. Ooh, so we'll ha- again, we're watching that as well. That's critical. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that's some fascinating uh, thoughts. Um, you know, something to chew over. Kate Barton, Global Vice Chair of Tax at EY, discussing what uh, the tax landscape might look like, although there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. 
So, a little bit of a delayed reaction, I think you could say, from cannabis stocks, as you might expect. <laughs> We're seeing them rally today. Of course, they took a bit of a hit, so to speak, yesterday. Even though some ballot measures legalizing the use of recreational marijuana did pass yesterday. Let's bring in Ken Shea. Senior Analyst for Global Food, Beverages and Tobacco at Bloomberg Intelligence to tell us what gives. So, Ken, why the delayed reaction? Yeah, hi, Vani. Um, well, I think a, a lot of investors may be awaiting the outcome for the presidential election and the state of the Senate. You know, two big important components to trying to, um, you know, estimate future sales potential. So, Ken, so what happened yesterday, just on Election Day? We had five additional states, including uh, uh, here in New Jersey, legalize uh, uh, recreational marijuana. Is that the, the bottom line? Yeah, hi, Paul. That's exactly right. Um, you know, the big takeaway from yesterday was the overwhelming nature of the voter approval of all five state U.S. marijuana ballot initiatives is a big plus for the industry uh, on a number of fronts. First, it further validates this industry uh, as a legitimate place in society. You know, we're talking about a $19 billion industry now. It's no longer some nascent uh, upcoming <laughs> group. Uh, it's now, at, you know, almost at the level of bottled water sales. I mean, it's out there. Wow. Yet, you know, yesterday's four states that approved New Jersey, Arizona, Montana, and South Dakota for recreational uh, authorization uh, for marijuana markets now uh, – allows them to push ahead with, you know, increasing number of dispensaries, locations, licensing activity can pick up, and make contribute to over a billion dollars in sales by the year 2023 to an industry, like I said, is um, you know, around $19, $25 billion or so. Yeah, and for context, let's give some of the companies. We're talking about Aurora Cannabis. We're talking about Tilray. We're talking about Afria. Some of them up double digits today. The thing is, though... Doesn't the cannabis industry want federal change so that we're not talking about state-by-state change here? We're talking about, you know, an entire country, at which point then you could really scale up operations, invite private equity in, and so on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Some of the big movers today are the Canadian companies, some that you mentioned there. And they're really going to be driven mostly by access to the U.S. Right now, they really don't have access because their, you know, stock listings don't, you know, from the stock exchanges, they don't allow them to compete directly in this federally illegal business. So they really need to have federal, you know, federal approval and access to the U.S. But that's not the case for the U.S. operators like uh, Cureleaf and Trueleaf and some of these so-called multi-state operators in the U.S. The state legalization alone is a big win. Um, it can further benefit them if it's state legal because it would mean, I mean, a federal legal because it, would, it could mean um, they, they have banking services, they would have more favorable tax treatment, they could perhaps, you know, sell across state lines, which they can't do today. Right. Uh, so that's really the bottom line with that. So where are we, Ken, with uh, a federal uh, type of uh, law here. If we were to have a Republican, a Democratic presidency, do we know the position of Mr. Biden? We do, Paul. Um, you know, he's got a record to saying that he would like to first uh, decriminalize it, um, remove uh, you know marijuana from the uh, con- Schedule One from the uh, Controlled Substances Act. That in itself would allow, as I mentioned, some tax benefits um, and some other benefits. Um, in terms of federal legalization, I think that's going to take some time. It would, in my opinion, it would certainly require a Democratic-controlled Senate. 
uh, in addition to the president, to um, you know act on something like that. But you know, even without that, there are considerable benefits to having a Biden presidency. Again, just by just by uh, rescheduling that Schedule One. Ken, I have a curiosity about how we get the marijuana to these states if you still can transport it across state lines. So, for example, in New Jersey, will it have to be grown in New Jersey? And also, what about the the banking laws? Is it still an all-cash business? Um, Well, in terms of uh, growing it, New Jersey is one of the many states, most of the states require vertical integration, and that's really to source tracing, to ensure uh, quality control, things like that. They require... um, the sellers to also grow it on their own. Um, and that won't change, we don't believe, in the near term. Um, so uh, so that, that's the case with that. In terms of, I'm sorry, what was your second question? Uh, banking. <laughs> oh, banking. Well, there's some, there's, um, you know, the Safe Banking Act uh, was approved by the House. It's been kind of on hold given the elections right now. But again, as I, as I mentioned, if, if there's a Democratic uh, control of the presidency and or Senate, we think that there's a good chance that that will allow some banking activity. Right, because right now, Paul, it's literally, you know, you, people need to have safe, safe deposits, safety deposit boxes in, in their Yeah, uh, I'm going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the, the great state of New Jersey, where Ken and I both live. Ken Shea, senior analyst, uh, covers global food, beverage, and tobacco for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us the latest here, Vani, on, uh, you know, five more states legalizing uh, uh, recreational marijuana, uh, which is good news for the cannabis companies. But again, as Ken Shea was saying, federal legislation is the holy grail. We're now joined by Josh Green, Bloomberg Businessweek columnist. He has a fascinating story uh, in uh, the Bloomberg Businessweek, basically saying Trumpism is here to stay no matter who's in the White House. Josh, thanks so much for joining us here. It is just extraordinary here. When you look at the absolute numbers here, Record turnout for this election. Uh, President Trump getting north of 68 million votes. There's a lot of support, obviously, out there. Even if he's not in the White House the next term, Josh, you're suggesting that Trumpism is here to stay. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at the election results we've seen so far, um, Trump has added millions and millions of voters, even as he's on track to lose the popular vote by something like 7 million votes. And, you know, one of the defining features of the Republican Party in the Trump era is that it's basically become a cult of Trump. I mean, everything uh, what, what binds Republican voters is is their strong approval of Trump. Um, you know, that was always going to make it difficult for the party to move on if Trump lost, because it wasn't clear what else would unite them. There isn't that kind of same excitement for a Tom Cotton or a Nikki Haley yet. There may be in four years, but there isn't right now. But I think the other thing that we saw on Tuesday night, this broad outpouring of support for Republicans generally uh, that helped Republicans win back House seats uh, and, and may leave them ultimately with control of the Senate, shows that Trumpism isn't the automatic death sentence for Republican candidates the Democrats going into election night presumed it to be. There wasn't a blue wave, and in some ways there was even a red wave. Uh, the way I describe it in the new uh, cover story in Business Week I wrote is, is that it's what we see are roiling cross currents of partisanship. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that Trump doesn't seem likely to leave the political stage regardless, 
I don't think that Trumpism is going away, well, uh, whatever the outcome of the election ultimately winds up being. Josh, is this essentially Steve Bannon's vision of the future that is coming out now and, and coming to pass? And, and obviously, you know, you wrote the book on Bannon, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the Nationalist Uprising. Is that what Trumpism is? You know, it's a good question. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a tricky answer. It is and it isn't. You know, on the one hand, Bannon always believed that it would take you know, a powerful, charismatic politician uh, to impose his brand of populist nationalism. Trump is certainly that. Um, but I think there are two problems. One, uh, Trump, once he was in office, never really followed through on that. His tax reform was heavily slanted toward the wealthy and corporations. And number two, you know, while nothing has been decided yet, the signs seem to point to Biden as likely to be the next the next uh, U.S. president. And so Trump, you know, losing after one term certainly would not be the Bannon vision. But uh, I think I, I think maybe a better way to say it is I don't see anything on the horizon that is likely to replace uh, or displace Bannon's vision for Republicans, whether or not Trump winds up winning a second term. So, Josh, what happened to the Republican Party? Where does the conservative movement within the Republican Party, uh, the George Wills and uh, of the world, where do they go? Um, Canada, maybe? <laughs> I don't know, because they, they, they certainly don't appear to have a home in U.S. politics. The Lincoln Project. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Lincoln Project, right. Uh, maybe maybe they can, you know, incorporate as a, as, as a country or establish residency somewhere. Uh, but they, they are, they're really adrift. You know, on the one hand, they can, they can support Biden. But on the other hand, you know, their argument that, 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 conservatives should repudiate the Republican Party up and down the ticket. Um, it really wasn't heated on election night when Republicans gained so much strength, uh, not just in Congress, but in state houses, too. It just really wasn't uh, this broad scale repudiation of the party that Lincoln Project types were hoping for. Uh, so, you know, I think they're 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 partisans without a party. Right. So now, you know, you say Trumpism is here to stay. Has that got something to do with the blue collar voter, for example? Or what do you mean if it is Biden in the White House? You know, where does Trump then go or his his, you know, antecedents? Well, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we don't have full election results yet, but it seems all but certain that there really was an outpouring of additional working class white collar uh, blue collar, sorry, uh, white blue collar support uh, that came out for Trump. I mean, you, you can see that just in his raw vote totals. I think that will be a big part of it. But part of it also was that there were a segment of, you know, upscale suburban white collar college educated voters who found Trump repulsive, but were still at heart Republicans and were willing to split their ticket, vote Joe Biden uh, and vote for their local member of Congress or senator as a Republican. And so, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot we don't know about the vote composition, but but certainly if you look below the presidential race, uh, the evening was a big disappointment for Democrats and showed that Republicans still have strength. I think some of the strength also worth mentioning is that Trump did uh, extremely well with uh, Hispanic and Latino voters, which was something that uh, strategists and people on the ground have been warning about for months, if not for years. Uh, we saw that come to full fruition on election night in places like Florida and in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where report uh, where support for Republicans was much, much stronger than Democrats thought it would be. Hey, Josh, on the flip side, 
what did the Democrats do here? They, again, as you were just saying, this was not a great showing for the Democrats. What do they need to do to uh, broaden their appeal? Well, the first thing they need to do is hold off, send off all these court challenges and make sure that Biden actually does become the next president. Um, but I think that's a great question. I don't think that there's an obvious answer. I mean, on the one hand, uh, if you look at the voters, they lost uh, in congressional races. They tended to be, you know, professional, somewhat conservative, college educated. Um, the, the, the ones they held on to were the ones around blue metro areas that Democrats won in 2018. So think people in the suburbs of Denver, Minneapolis, uh, you know, northern Virginia, northern New Jersey, those kind of places in Atlanta, I should say, those kind of places held. The places that didn't were some of the further reaches that they won in 2018, North, uh, South Carolina's first district. Um, uh, there's a, there was a, a district, Oklahoma 5, right outside Oklahoma City, the suburbs there. They lost those, and they lost all of the red-tinged suburban districts they were targeting in places like Texas and New Mexico. So I think the answer is that they've got to find a message that uh, you know, is not a radical left message that appeals to those kinds of voters uh, while also activating the, the excitement of base Democratic voters, they still need to show to, to show up. You know, the one the one thing if you squint really hard, um, you know, there is a case though for things like the fifteen dollar minimum wage. You know, that one in Florida yes. by a large margin, even as Democrats lost, mm-hmm. maybe there's a possibility for a kind of a fusion left centrist policy that Democrats can run on. Josh Green, you have to promise to come back again in coming weeks and everybody go read his Bloomberg business cover story right now. That's uh, Josh Green of Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.